0: When you hear bonds, what's the first thing you think of? For most of us, it's those brown pieces of paper that we used to get for life's milestone events with the promise that in 30 years, the U.S. government would give you X amount of dollars back with interest. Unexciting as bonds seem, there is a whole other world for fixed income, where bonds trade like stocks, where you can invest in anything from government or corporate debt to mortgages. It's a fascinating side of finance that's easily overlooked by many, but yet so critical to the functioning of the world economy. On today's show, we are joined by Mary Childs, author of the book, The Bond King, which tells the story about legendary bond investor Bill Gross and how he made a market, built an empire, and then lost it all. This is Financial Recon, connecting the dots between everyday life and money. Here's Mike Molitoris with Mary Childs.
1: All right, Mary, welcome right. to Financial Recon. I'm super stoked to have you here. So thank I'm you.
2: so stoked to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Your book, The Bond King, is mind-blowingly awesome, and I I cannot say enough good stuff about it. Um, it's Thank like, you. It's like listening or reading. Well, I've been listening to the audiobook, too. Um, it's like listening to my career unfold and like giving <laughs> people a peek into the meetings that I've had over the last, you know what is this 14, uh, 14 years around the housing crisis and so yeah. forth. So thank you for writing it.
2: Oh, thank you for reading it. That really <sighs> means a lot to me. Thank you.
1: So just so we could bring people up to speed, who is bill gross? Why is he the bond King? And what is yeah. PIMCO?
2: <laughs> yeah. The the basics. Let's do it. Let's yeah. get in it. Um, so bill gross is the co-founder of bond management giant PIMCO Um, but the reason he's the bond King is really because I mean, twofold, I think it's, it's first because he helped to invent active bond trading in the first place. You know, back in the day Mm -hmm. when he started his career, bonds simply weren't traded. They were largely kept in a vault in the basement and you clipped the coupon and, you know, sent it in for an interest payment. And that was that, that's all you did. And Bill and his cohort helped to revolutionize that, helped to really change it. And for decades, Bill Gross was the face of this new, more dynamic, more exciting bond market. You know, he would go on TV and talk about, you know, bonds are going this way, interest rates are going that way, and, and kind of, you know, wax poetic about what was going on in the market. And he sent out these investment outlooks every month that were very widely read. Um, it was like an event when one came out, everyone stopped what they were doing to read it. Um, and they're very, I mean, they're very good. They're funny. They're like accessible. They always start with this like quirky little anecdote. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of the, you know, the creating the market in the first place is really, in my mind, the kind of foundational reason he's the bond king. And then creating Pimco, one of the largest asset managers in the space and most influential in the space. That's kind of the other reason, you know, he was this legendary trader, um, mm-hmm. and investor and created one of the, World's greatest track records in, in bond investing and in fixed income investing.
1: Yeah, everyone, PIMCOs touches everything, right? Like it's in your mm-hmm. 401ks, it's in investment accounts. I mean, they're on TV everywhere. So mm-hmm. it's so big, it's insane. And one of the things I found real interesting about Gross is he really liked to dig into the psychology of stuff. Hmm. Could you talk, you know, just like a little bit about that and like how that played a role in his strategies at PIMCO?
2: Absolutely. So Bill Gross was a psych major in college, which I think you're right. I think it helped to inform his career and his ability to read the markets. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, after college, he went to Vegas for a few months and counted cards playing blackjack. And I think <laughs> the combination of understanding human psychology and the kind of intuitive ability, mathematical and intuitive ability to read risk, you know, that comes from counting cards and having that kind of mathematical underpinning of like stats and odds and like knowing when the odds are in your favor and when they're not. That combination, I think, is super powerful in investing and in trading. So, you know, it is this... I think it did inform his ability to look at the market and say, okay, everyone's experiencing FOMO before FOMO was a word that we (laughs) had and used or everyone is, you know, just being able to sort of diagnose the psychological condition of like what people are feeling and why they're acting in a certain way. And that need to go with the crowd, go against the crowd. I think that helped him understand when to make his own choices with or against the crowd. And he was sort of, above average at making those calls. There are a couple standout examples where he wasn't right. But mm-hmm. that to me, you know, when you talk to traders who traded alongside him or people who worked at PIMCO for a long time and saw him make these market calls, they're going to tell you that he had above average batting on, on these issues of like, okay, everyone else thinks that this is a really scary situation. I know better. We're jumping in.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just, when you hear that he applied the the psychology of it, it's like, I want to say it almost sounds like he was one of the earliest adopters of behavioral finance and
2: yeah. And and I think that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So one of the things we talked about when I was in grad school was, you know, footnotes management discussion (laughs) analysis, like why they're so important. Read them, read them, read them. You get a ton of information out of it. Yeah. And it's like, he actually did that. Yeah. And (laughs) you know, that led to. I thought this was just an, an incredible, you know, uh, story that you talk about in the book. But can you talk a little bit about the Ginny May future story in '82 that he was able to just exploit? I mean,
2: yeah, yeah. This is one of my favorite um, parts of the book. It was really, really hard to report because only uh-huh. a few people really knew the story, like the ins and outs, and and there, you know, memories decay, and there are a bunch oh, yeah. of reasons why, like people remember it differently or. But basically it was a two-leg uh trade that took place over a couple of years, wherein they discovered that, you know, Chris Dialinus who worked at Pimco and still does actually so Chris Dialenus, was one of the very early hires on the trade floor at Pimco and is still there today. He actually came up with this trade. He brought this trade back from his, you know, regular rounds talking to Wall Street dealers and other pals in the industry. And it turned out that there was this contract, uh, Jenny Mae CDRs. And they, you know, we were still kind of figuring out what contracts are mm-hmm. at the time and and like what they what the contracts need basically to like induce people to trade them. What makes people want to trade a contract? Okay, it needs this lever. It needs this optionality. It needs this kind of cool. It needs to behave in this certain way in order to make it worth it for people to trade it. And that's a discovery process, right? So early. we're still in the early days, and this contract, you know, it was pretty new, and it in large part hadn't really been tested. And, and the main way that I'm thinking of was rates hadn't been going down very much during the period that this contract was was in use. So rates kind of started to turn. And as a result, it kind of upended the the cheapest to deliver and the availability of those cheapest to deliver. So it's pretty gnarly. It's pretty wonky. It's going to take me like half an hour to do this trade justice because first of all, I get so distracted by each nuance because it's so cool and so much fun. But basically, people oh, yeah. figured out, Chris and Bill figured out that there were too many levers in this contract, like too many different options. And if you like pulled this one lever and then pulled the other lever and also kind of had cornered the market by buying up a lot of the securities or a lot of the contracts, then you would actually break it, basically. And this culminates in kind of a couple different like movie scenes in my... Like I feel like the the chapters to me... Like I hope to convey this movie, like almost like a bank heist feel, where they're like driving around Chicago with armed guards and like picking up duffel bags. It's just where the Ray bans walking in, literally, yeah, yeah, like the wind blowing <laughs> through their hair. Yeah, exactly. You, you're picking up what I'm putting yeah. down. It's it's exactly this kind. Of, you just can't believe that this happened in this like extremely literal and and wild way. And this is the benefit of reading the footnotes of thinking through. Okay, if if X happens, then why? If there are only so many cheapest to del- cheapest to deliver Jenny Mays in the universe, what happens if they run out? What happens if, you know, we have such a big position that they can't actually meet a physical delivery with the cheapest to deliver? Mm-hmm. Let's find <laughs> out. It's so fun. And, and, and that's the
1: that's like the the genius of them is that they're willing to push the push that, you know, exactly. Just, hey, well, what, what will happen
2: Exactly. That's exactly right. And I think like either, you know, this is a perfect example of exactly that where you could have read the contract and been like, Oh my goodness. There is this amazing trade that's possible. And it took a lot to realize that the trade existed, right? Mm -hmm. Like it was just sitting there, but you had to use your brain and read in order to figure out that it was just sitting there. But furthermore, you had to have clients willing to let you do it. You had to have mandates that let you do it. You had to have capital to let you do it. There were like a thousand different obstacles that you would have had to have removed that a lot of institutions would have had to have, would have had to remove to be able to participate in this trade. And they just couldn't. But Pimco not only saw the trade, figured out how to do it. Got client permission to do it, literally went around and got clients on board. Like it's a manual process. And that really opened the door for their use of derivatives in these mutual funds, which they happily and enthusiastically did for years.
1: Yeah. I, I just like, I'm going to reference grad school again. I just remember going through derivatives and just, whew, I'm, I, I tell folks, I'm like, that is.
2: That's where that, the fun is.
1: Yeah, that's 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 a whole nother yeah. ball of wax. It's and so
2: fun. Yeah,
1: if, I say if you like to to talk to me, then I can't do derivatives. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, you know, speaking of der- derivatives, we we roll into one of my favorite characters uh, in the whole Pimpico story. Someone who's still there is Paul McCauley. And he's
2: not, he's not still there.
1: He isn't?
2: Oh. No. No, he oh. left basically after Gross left. He lasted like maybe another year. Oh, I thought
1: he I thought he had come back. Oh I'll no, see. he's
2: teaching. He's uh he's teaching at Georgetown.
1: Oh that's that's awesome. Maybe I'll have to yeah. stop in and find him. Oh uh, <laughs> well he, he he was he's always been one of my favorite uh media uh speaking or talking heads that Pim would roll out. I mean yeah. Yeah. always great. great and I thought it was real interesting when you talk about how he was sitting there and just like, folks, this is how the shadow banking system totally operates. Mm -hmm. Can, Can you just explain a little bit about what he was like, jumping up and down about what this shadow banking was?
2: Yeah, basically, what had happened in the run up to the crisis was that there had been so much borrowing and lending in sort of an odd embedded way, like selling um products that had embedded leverage, say okay. uh, like a derivative you know it's not you, it's a cheaper product you don't it's not as expensive as the underlying thing that it references, probably, and in that way you're making larger you know gross notional bets than the cash that's being changed in you know in your mm-hmm. hand. Than that actually expresses. So I think the the thing that Paul spotted here was that there had been so much growth in these types of products and in other things that it basically had converted had created this enormous machine, but a machine that was largely invisible to regulators because it was in the private sector because it was kind of embedded in these products. There just wasn't like a central repository. There wasn't like a way to see the amount of leverage that had been accruing in the system. Mm -hmm. And so regulators were kind of blind to it. And the institutions themselves were kind of blind to it. You know, they didn't realize that so-and-so had also traded with so-and-so. And therefore, the notional had just grown and grown and grown. And it's it's this idea that there is this enormous invisible machine converting basically... Increasing leverage in the system, converting today trades to future—you know, just just building up and up and up the notional amount that was going to be that they were that people were betting on, and the the difference, you know, because it was so invisible, it took people like Paul McCulley to figure it out and to say, "Wait, this is going to be a thing." Like this, this is both unsustainable and untenable, but also like just enormous kindling for an explosion. Like this is going to be a big problem. And that I think, you know, because he was also a disciple of Hyman Minsky, the economist, he was able to think more about how risk accrues in a system. And I think that helped him to spot the shadow banking thing in general. You know, he's a great economic thinker in the first place, but Mm -hmm. this like Minsky moment is also a a term that he coined. And I think that he just had this enormously clear vision of, of that risk accrual in a way that, a lot of other people in the financial system and watching it and regulating it really did not have.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which, which kind of leads into everybody's, you know, flashpoint nowadays is 2008 yes. and people are, you know, you, you hear the rumblings going on today. Are we, yep. are we setting ourselves up for another 2008 and everything? And what preparation did PIMCO you know, take from Macaulay and start to apply towards their strategies to get the funds ready for, say, this Minsky moment.
2: Yeah, I mean, there were a number of ways. I think the biggest was it wasn't just Paul McCulley for clarity. He um he was kind of one the 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 mortgage team had also done a ton of research saying, you know, the housing situation is untenable and at some point people are gonna be unable to make their next payment. And something will happen. Mm-hmm. And um, the corporate credit guy, Mark Keisel, was also saying, you know, something's coming. There's gonna be a for sale sign in your neighbor's yard. Um, and all of this kind of rolled up into PIMCO realized that they needed to ramp down risk at some point mm-hmm. going into the crisis. Now, they were early in most across most of the firm. There were pockets where they were not totally early. Like there was a cash fund that did not fare that great for a cash fund relative to the crisis. It did fine. It was down like 5%, which like, that's great <laughs> in the financial crisis. But for a cash fund, that's like a very bad day yeah. um, or like bad year. So the the idea... Being like, if they just didn't have as much risk on as everyone else going into the crisis and mm-hmm. everyone else suffered all this, you know, all these terrible losses and, and, you know, had to mark everything down, PIMCO could be there to step in and buy that stuff from those people who are freaking out and need to raise capital and have marked all their stuff down and are fire sailing their whole por- portfolio. And that basically is how it worked out.
1: When you said that about the cash fund, I think of the reserve fund.
2: Oh, yeah. And no, it's S- not dissimilar. Yeah.
1: And that whole breaking of the buck story that, Wild times. I mean, yeah, I was with a company at the time that stepped in and had a back. They ended up backing wow. all of the uh, money that was locked up in that. Wow. It, it it was, it was insane. But when the housing crisis started, I, I do vividly remember watching gross on CNBC seemingly like every day. I, it was like, he did oh, that know, in right? the morning. Right. Yeah. Like, and maybe, Bloomberg Maybe Radio,
2: Bloomberg, Bloomberg
1: TV. Yeah. <laughs> I was just to say Bloomberg in the afternoon. I don't know if Fox Business was around, but, you know, like, holy Moses, he was everywhere. Yeah. And I think he was getting up with my alarm. But what I found uh, real interesting is how he telegraphed to the government what to do with those GSEs. Can you touch on that? Because it, it kind of ties into something that happened around COVID that. When I heard this story, I was like, wow, these seem seem too close to each other.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this was to me, this was the moment where their influence was the most on display. I don't know if it was the moment when they were the most influential necessarily, but Mm -hmm. it was definitely the most pronounced external moment. But basically, the government had not made clear just how government sponsored the government sponsored enterprises of the GSEs, (laughs) you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were. And in the fall of 2008, they owned or backed more than $5 trillion of mortgage debt. And obviously 2008, the mortgage debt was not a hundred cents on the dollar money good. Right. So, you know, the, because of that government, like half promise, people had been happy to buy the debt previously. But then in this crisis, like that was a real question. That was an acute question. Like, is this government sponsored or is it not? Like it just yeah, doesn't have became, the implicit
1: backing or. Right.
2: What do yeah. you mean by backing? Does that mean a 100 cents on the dollar or does it not? And like, that's a binary, right? So people were freaking out trying to figure this out. And PIMCO was like, you're going to need to back it. Like Bill Gross, Palmer, like other people, right. everyone was just the, the PIMCO institutional view, which they made very clear in investment outlooks and on TV and elsewhere, that this is what needed to happen. The government needed to make explicit that promise and to back the debt. And of course, this was shocking their book. And it's what the government did i gov- I'm I'm so curious. You know, I want Tim Geiner to call me and tell me, you know, like I wanna like this is this Tim, is if not you're like, listening. yeah, just give me a buzz. Um <laughs> but it is an interesting question. Well, it's it is like an interesting moment where clearly Pimco, whether the US government liked it or not, Pimco had enormous influence. And the government did exactly what PIMCO wanted. So my question would be like, is that what we want? Is this a structure that we intended to have where an enormous asset manager can more or less force rank their clients above the American taxpayer, right? Right. Like if I'm a taxpayer, but I'm not a PIMCO client and I just helped to bail out these mortgages, like am I, I'm maybe I'm happy for my neighbor who gets to keep their house. Like certainly yes. But am I necessarily happy that the mortgage investors at the end of the, like, Little chain of of mortgage payments that they got their money is that necessarily great?
1: Yeah, well, that's where going off on this it, it it really makes you scratch your head when you you start to go down that road of how influential they were, how they got out of being labeled systematic or uh, systemically important.
2: Sifis, uh, yeah, yeah
1: Sifis, yeah. yeah.
2: I miss uh, that term. You know, no one uses it anymore. So got to bring <laughs> it back for.
1: Yeah, hey, you know, <laughs> like it's uh. It, it it was one of those like military acronyms. You got to like spell it out or yeah. folks are going to be like, "What?" <laughs> but you know, like it just like I mentioned earlier, it really brought me back to COVID when someone got on CNBC right. screaming and yelling, I was really like, just like, yeah, that, it seems like it's a, a textbook. Now we're telegraphing
2: what needs to happen, what
1: needs to happen. And
2: I hadn't it's, thought of it that way, that that was like sort of the PIMCO playbook. That's a good point.
1: Well, and then with COVID, the other correlation to the housing crisis and COVID that I, I noticed was the L. Arian for bazookas theory, Muhammad L. Arian's for bazookas, where he in 2008, he, you know, he said, we need to have simultaneously four bazookas firing at one time to help basically get the economy going and it seems like again pimco helped write that playbook definitely yeah i love
2: that it's bazookas like what do we like how is that is the economy a monster is it like king kong and we have to kill the recession monster like i'm just trying to work through the analogy
1: you know i don't know what it was but i like it i just like (laughs) it because it's just Give me that you know,
2: violence. <laughs> it,
1: it gets it gets people thinking like, wow, bazookas, that's really it sounds big. It sounds yeah. really big.
2: Yeah. I mean, got saying got four, four
1: battleship guns firing at once, people are like probably now like, what's a battleship? I mean, yeah, who
2: are we? Is it like there's like a naval academy that we're fighting? Like is it okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. are we no, are, I are got we gonna, gonna
1: get the game yeah. out and right. you know stuff like that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for you know, Milton Bradley or whoever, feel free to slap in an advertisement there. Um okay. Another note we talked about was like they helped to create the trading of of bonds and uh, uh, gross and PIMCO created that. But can we think of it that they also helped create the environment in which they ultimately prospered?
2: I mean, yeah, like one of the reasons they were so ready for the financial crisis and so able to identify it and so able to take advantage of, you know, the downturn and the subsequent rally. Mm -hmm. Wasn't just because they were able to bully the US government, in my view. It's also because they were so up to their ears in mortgages for so long. Like they were a very early entrant in the mortgage-backed market in investing mm-hmm. in mortgages. And I think that that for basically ever they had a greater fluency in that market than a lot of other people. And like having that edge like yes necessarily they helped to shape it necessarily they helped to build and and construct the market in a way that worked for them and then when things went wrong they saw it first and they were able to exploit it and like that's just markets you know there's no real mechanism if there's a problem in the market or like a bad structure as an investor, the only way to express that is to exploit it. You know, I mean, I guess it could be like, hey, hey, excuse me. This seems all that stuff. But like, what's going to happen? You know, and, and to some extent they did that. Like Bill Gross definitely has written investment outlooks where he's like, I think the system's a little rigged, you know, <laughs> and like people are like, whoa, can't believe he's saying that. But it doesn't do anything. So I'm not sure what I think the mechanism should be to like fix the broken thing other than, you know, the one that we have is write an investment outlook and then exploit it to your great profit and like force rank your clients over taxpayers or like, that's it. Like, I don't know what the, you know, I, I don't, I feel like there's gotta be a better way. Um, but it is absolutely true. I think that they're, you know, we all were thrust into the world where they were the expert in that crisis. Right. Oh yeah, And the government had to call them for help. You know, like we all like the, the structure had gotten so overheated right. The machine going into the, into the financial crisis, you know, they were churning things out to meet this insatiable demand in that shadow bank, like that invisible shadow bank, all it wanted was more things to eat. Right. Mm -hmm. And so wall street was just churning out things to meet that demand. And like, this is kind of a failure among like on multiple points, right. It's absolutely a failure on multiple points that we, that, that there was no real like buck stoppage, like it just mm-hmm. kept going because the mar- that's just the way mark- the market was built. And then it corrects itself. But the problem is in that correction, it's extremely painful for everyday people in the system that we've built. You know, people lost their houses, people lost their jobs, like, fam- like this was a devastating event and we're still paying for it today. You know, like the, the seeds of all of the populism and you could argue fascism are, I, I think you can trace them back to the financial crisis.
1: Oh, yeah. The financial crisis, I think, is easily attributable to the younger generation, at least for the younger generation. Is that that financial trauma that they, you know, you experience as a youth that, you know, influences their money scripts. And it's going to be real interesting to see how for that demographic, how Mm -hmm. they're able to navigate the coming years of totally, you know, interest rates, markets, so forth.
2: Well, it's funny, you hear people be surprised, like you hear this great surprise where people are like, oh my God, I can't believe that, you know, there's this rising tide of like interest in democratic socialism among the young. And you're like, but they saw the banks get bailed out. Like, what did, like, how, they're just kind of calling it, you yeah. know, like, I feel mm-hmm. like it's like some people are taking the same facts and and sifting through them and finding a different conclusion than you. But it's really hard to argue that those facts, you know, like we can all select our own facts, I guess. But <laughs> I don't know. Like, I see where they're coming from.
1: Yeah. I mean, in 2000 and in 2008, this is in this next question is why I know a lot of people get upset is how much money did they make the day Fanny and Freddie were went into concert? Well, when did he propose this? When did it happen? And how much money did they make?
2: Okay. So I have
1: my manuscript
2: in front of me so I can answer your pop quiz. Um No. So, so Bill Gross published uh an investment outlook and went on CNBC at the beginning of September um 2000. Let me make sure I get the number right. Eight, right? I mean, it has to be. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, okay. So Bill Gross went on CNBC a couple of days after he published his investment outlook. This was September 2008. You know, this like the crisis is like at its right. apex. And On September 7th, 2008, the Treasury Secretary announces that the government will put Fannie and Freddie into conservatorship and that Treasury would um, pour billions of dollars to cover their losses. So that's, you know, that's basically promising that total returns holdings, that all of those, you know, that that mortgage debt would be backed by the government. And so it was indeed it was total returns best day ever. Um, They had a gain of one point three percent. Which was in dollar terms, one point seven billion dollars in one day. Amazing! It's insane.
1: Outside of me citing that statistic, you're the only other person, like, <laughs> say that. So, um, so <laughs> it's I. It's underappreciated.
2: I feel it's underappreciated. Well, the
1: I- book is making it more mainstream, which is it's it's actually something that I think it's important for people to understand. And I mean, I'm a. My personal opinion, but uh-huh. I think active bond management, you know, in the current environment, it, it's something that you have to seriously look at. As we said, with derivatives and so forth, a lot of minefields out there, you, you know, you got to make sure you you know what you're buying. So true. In preparing for our discussion, I was uh, listening to some of your other interviews and I heard you describe the conviction with which Bill Gross stuck with his investing philosophy and one of the things that jumped to mind was you know that's something people always say about warren buffett and value investing is would you say there's just like for these people who are you know equity kings or bond kings there's a certain brilliance to just being able to focus on that strategy and tune it all out
2: yes but this is what i think a lot about where it's like If your strategy is like medium good and you focus real hard, like you're not going to do the good. You know what I mean? Like you have to have a really good strategy and you have to keep at it. Right. So you also have to be able you have to be able to diagnose if your strategy is good and then stick with it. And then you also have to be able to say, wait a minute, I think the world has changed and reevaluate your strategy. But like, when do you know if the world has... So this is the part that I think is like so hard to parse. And I know this is absolutely foundational to investing. So like, this is a little bit <laughs> obvious. But like, when you have a good strategy like Bill Gross did and like Warren Buffett does, it's it's like you bring it to the table every day, right. even when you're suffering through a bad period, even when the market's going against you. You're like, eh, them's the breaks, You know, like <laughs> that's just what happens. Even a perfect optimal portfolio is going to underperform sometimes. Right. So how do you know when, say, the interest rate paradigm has permanently shifted? You know, like when do you know that your strategy breaks? And I think you know that's the the value in having someone like a Paul Macaulay, but Bill was also a close Fed watcher, and and I think like being able to sift, you know, signal and noise, like it's all of that kind of thing. But that to me is it. It is just there were moments throughout Bill's career where it looked like, oh my God, this is the end of the bull market. And indeed, Bill himself called the end of the bull market probably a billion times. <laughs> <laughs> like, truly, like Bill goes right. end of bu- bull market, like you'll get a billion hits. So I it's, you know, he nonetheless kept investing along these strategies and it worked out for him. So it's, it's just like funny, like, and that's a dissonance. That's a friction that I don't totally understand. Like you can broadcast, like why would you broadcast that your strategy is no longer going to work? So you can limit crowding. I don't think that really was it. So there is that like self-awareness that's necessary, but also like insulating yourself from the external world and sticking with your strategy. So it's a weird and confusing balance of watching your own self and your own like emotions and being able to keep a hold on all of that Mm -hmm. and not be affected. And then also know when to be affected. (laughs)
1: And do you think him being out in Newport beach helped like Buffett being in Omaha? He always says like that it helps to keep him away from wall street.
2: I mean, yeah, sure. It just like, whatever works for you. They're, they're good traders in New York. You know what I mean? Like, I don't (laughs) know what to tell you.
1: Yeah, no, I I mean, I just didn't know if it was similar to, you know, the same folksy things Buffett has like,
2: I think from a branding perspective, it does help. Yeah. I think like, especially if you're trying to build a like retail empire, not being in New York is probably helpful um, being like, Oh, I'm not one of those guys, one of those suits who's going to rip you off. Like, I definitely <laughs> think that's like a helpful thing um, to, to broadcast and like being that folks, the adorable person, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, they certainly made it part of their branding. So I think they think it's true and maybe it is, you know, I, I don't know. I think there's also a value to being in the information flow. So
1: yeah, it's one, it's just one of those G Gee, golly, I wonder.
2: <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Surely we could research it, right? We could, yeah, we could yeah. A, some good data.
1: One of the people we haven't do- dove too much into is Dan Ivickson, and um, a lot of my clients know him as the manager of Pimco Income. I know a lot of people love, love to hear like his role in this and how he eventually became chief investment officer. Was mm-hmm. he even like in a couple of years? Can you touch on that?
2: Yeah. So Dan Iveson ran the PIMCO income fund, as you say, um, which did enormously well in the crisis. And I think that this was sort of um, this was the like big thing. You know, it wasn't just Iveson, but he was the like right. flush left first name on it. And um, and he also was um, like the Alps guy. You know, they have a private equity fund. They have hedge funds. They have a bunch of other stuff that they've been working on and the kind of like commercial real estate group. Like that was a big growth area, especially in the time that we're thinking about in, you know, 2013 and 14. So, when the firm was in this kind of extremely tumultuous period, a lot of like the rank and file people are thinking, maybe even not consciously, about how they're getting paid, you know, Mm -hmm. like why their shadow equity in the company is going to do well. And the answer was Dan Iveson. So, he had inflows, he had good performance, he had this growth area that was going to be higher profit, higher margin. And that was this like new area for PIMCO to kind of ramp up in. Whereas Bill Gross at the time was like, you know, the founder, sure. We all respect him. We love him. He's great. Oh, it's Bill Gross. But that's no, he was no longer the like growth. Like he was no longer the growth engine. And Mm -hmm. I think that even if you respect Bill Gross and, you know, started at the firm because you want to be near him and want to learn from him, yada, yada, like all that can be true. But even subconsciously, if Dan Iverson's the one making you money, yeah. like causing your comp to be real good at the end of the year. like So I think that when the push came to shove and, and they were thinking about who's going to lead the firm next, I think Dan was a really easy answer.
1: Yeah. Well, as I was telling you before, PIMCO, when I met with them in 2010, I remember the PIMCO rep saying, hey, there's this investment called this income fund, just take a look at it. And over yeah. the years we did some research and we were like, oh wow. Yeah. And uh, Ivixon's, you know, when he's done his thing. And yeah. uh I, I was happy to hear that he's a he's a board shorts kind of guy. Flip flops <laughs> and uh, yeah. buy the NASCAR, tacos. Yeah. What was it? Doritos tacos for the
2: Yeah, yeah. The Taco the- Bell order. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, it sounds gross, but like why not try it, you know? I got cronuts for my team once, and that was also <laughs> disgusting. So,
1: yeah, that's that's it, uh, not my thing. My daughter might be into the taco thing, but that's, mm, yeah. that's her cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what happened to, you know, we, we, we talked about all the players here. What happened to Gross eventually and his whole time with Pimco?
2: Yeah. So, you know, the second half of the book is largely like this botched management transition. I would say the the idea that Muhammad Alarian would leave so unexpectedly and then subsequently that there would be all these leaks springing out of PIMCO and people would be undermining the firm in public, you know, to the press Uh. subversively like that idea, I think, was extremely corrosive for Bill Gross. Um, You know, Muhammad Alarian left in January 2014 and there was an article 20 uh, in February 2014 that was really bad for PIMCO and for Bill Gross's image in the Wall Street Journal. And um, there were a couple in the FT as well. And I think that was, to me, that's like the bee that got stuck in Bill's bonnet and he just couldn't get over it. Um, and the fact that he was just perseverating on these events of January and February and hunting these moles within the company and trying so hard to figure out who leaked and trying to get the people you know held to account for their actions... Like the rest of the company is just trying to keep companying, you know. They're like, "What? Why are you hung up on this? Why are you not able to move forward?" Like, we need to, like, you know, right. pro- like project to the world that we're doing great. We need to, like, keep managing client money. We need to think about the future and areas for growth. You know, like, like business stuff. <laughs> and, and I think it's just that Bill Gross was no longer really showing up to work as just a professional. He was also showing up really as a person, as a hurt person. And I think that that was basically unmanageable by the end so the the gnarly details are in, are all in the book but um it's it's very much this kind of tragic story of like he couldn't get over this this wound mm-hmm. and it it kind of created a, a chasm between him and the rest of the management of the company
1: yeah and it was um definitely uh an interesting time for PIMCO. I remember that. With was me. that? Yes. <laughs> because uh, spe- specifically around the L and relationship at your book, I, when I was reading it, I was just like, oh, my Lord, I could not I know right believe it. So what's he up to now?
2: So Bill Gross I mean, is now um, golfing in Palm Springs, as I understand it. I think that's his, you know, he's still investing for his himself and he occasionally will hop on CNBC and, you know, Bloomberg radio and, and he still issues investment outlooks periodically Uh, in the intervening years. He went to Janice famously invested there for about five years. Then he got divorced also famously um, and very ugly divorce. um, Lots of gnarly headlines coming out of that. And then he also famously got in a uh, fight with his next door neighbor in which, The neighbor objected to some sculpture in his yard or rather objected to the netting that was over top the sculpture and um, basically flagged to the city that he needed the correct permits for this sculpture, which then Bill Gross and his wife started playing music on repeat at all hours. And it went to court. It became this whole thing. It really snowballed
1: songs, the Gilligan Island.
2: It was. It was. Yeah. The Gilligan's Island (laughs) theme song. Yeah. They just really love that song. So, <laughs>
1: and, and I know that you interviewed Bill for this book, um, yeah. a handful of times, a and lot of times, um, yeah,
2: he was really generous with his time for this. Yeah, it was. Did, nice. he,
1: did he share his playlist with you?
2: This was actually we talked substantially <laughs> before that happened. So uh, by the time he was playing Gilligan's Island, I was like deep in edits, like trying. You know, at a certain yeah. point, like I. I didn't want to keep bothering him. Like, I was like, hey, Bill, in 1983, did you really bother? Yeah, like, I'm <laughs> annoying and I get that. So, <laughs> it, you know, at a certain point in reporting, you're like, all right, I got to cool it. I got to let this person live their life. And like, we were in that phase where I'm mm-hmm. like, not trying to bother him too much and let him, I'm trying to let him be a person. And I'm like also being driven insane by my own edits and like, you know, is this the right adjective on page 287? Is this exactly? <laughs> so I, I was very much in that world and not bothering him, but also like watching from afar as that stuff started to come out and being like, fml i have to go change the ending again <laughs> like you know yeah. i eventually had i literally did have to go rewrite the ending so
1: i only like to ask that because 99 percent of the time when i ask did you get bill gross's playlist people you just hear crickets so <laughs> <laughs> i appreciate you were in me
2: no of um, course <laughs> i mean i think you could You could replicate it. It's 50 Cent in the club. It's Gilligan's Island theme song. It's Green Acres. You know, you could really go. I mean, we've got, what, 10 minutes there, 15 minutes already. (laughs) So, like, you can make a playlist. Yeah. And if
1: Paul McCauley, you know, consulted on that, what would it be?
2: (laughs) Oh, man. Good question. I feel like I should know the answer. I know that he likes this is not related to music, but he likes rabbits. He loves rabbits. He has a bunch of bunny sculptures everywhere.
1: Well, Hop to it, huh? Hey, Comedy hour. (laughs) Um, Finally, you know, Mary, there's a great quote in your book that jumped out at me. And it it was from Bill Gross, I should say. It said, what if there is a future that demands that an investor, a seemingly great investor, change course, or at Mm -hmm. least learn new tricks? Is this Uh, from the
2: infamous April 2013 Man in the Mirror Investment Outlook?
1: Don't remember. Let me it it was about the Epoch.
2: Yep, that's the one.
1: That's one one. Um, but it, ah, now that would be a test of greatness, the ability to adapt to a new Epoch. Yeah. See, April uh, 2013,
2: one month before the taper tantrum.
1: And, and it just seems so relevant to today. It does. I, I just think w- with what's going on, again, yeah. the bond market being what it is. Yeah. Is Do you think this is going to be too tempting for him (laughs) to come back and try to solidify his greatness?
2: Oh, man. He loves a challenge. So now that you put it out there, I mean, I feel like you're speaking it into existence. If you just egg him on a little bit more, you might get your wish.
1: Well, I'm not not necessarily. (laughs) But, you know, Bond King, we need Bond King, the part two, you know. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, this is not um what Bill Gross would want to hear, but I do see on Twitter a lot of Bond King. You know, I have a, a, a Google alert for Bond King because obviously <laughs> I wrote the book called The Bond King. And a lot of stuff comes up that's about Jeffrey Gunlock. So I'm not yeah. going to write that book. He is in this book and I'm ruling that sufficient. But, um, you know, we're not without our our legends. We yeah. have some to this day.
1: Yeah. And I just, you know, I look at this environment and and just reading the book, I just wonder if this is just too big a carrot to... I know.
2: I know. I mean, it may be... He is investing for himself and he traded GameStop, you know, like yeah. he made $10 million or something on like trading GameStop. So I think, you know, he's not... He's probably out there in the market as we... He's almost certainly... He is certainly in the market right now. So like, yeah, yeah he's not... I think he'll trade till he does. What well, is it?
1: Old habits die hard. I mean, yeah,
2: it's it's just so a part of who he is. You know, I think it's like how he processes information. Like, if you took the market away from him, like I don't, I don't know. He already retired from the stamps market. I think he would be really miserable without without investing.
1: So was he one of the original? Uh, what, what would we say? Uh, alternative uh, collectibles? Or... Yes.
2: Oh yes. Oh yes. <laughs> I mean, he like largely financialized the stamps market. Like it was he he himself built like personal indexes of stamps marking their like sales points across time and benchmarking that against like other asset classes like yeah he like did this all just as a hobby incredible wow i know
1: i mean that's you got to be i always say there's certain things you got to be wired specifically yep. for and he just loved it i mean it's it's a fascinating uh story of the brilliance and eccentricity of this world-famous Bond King.
2: Thank you.
1: Mary, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Everyone, go check out the Bond King at your local bookstore if you get a chance.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks to Mary for sharing her insights with Mike, and be sure to follow her on social media. You can follow Mary on Twitter, at MDC. You can follow us on Twitter, at Financial underscore Recon. And as always, if you like this show, please be sure to subscribe and share it. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through the Pinnacle Financial Group, DBA, Flagship Wealth Management Group, a registered investment advisor. The Pinnacle Financial Group and Flagship Wealth Management Group are separate entities from LPL Financial. Mary Childs and The Bond King are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial, Flagship Wealth Management Group, or the Pinnacle Financial Group. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal professional. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal. Bonds are subject to market and interest rate risk if sold prior to maturity. Bond values will decline as interest rates rise and bonds are subject to availability and change in price. GNMAs are guaranteed by the U.S. government as to the timely payment of principal and interest. However, this guarantee does not apply to the yield, nor does it protect against loss of principal if the bonds are sold prior to the payment of all underlying mortgages.